0: We've done a short study of salvation, of what Jesus has to say about what it means to be born again, what it means to be saved from sin, to have peace with God and to receive eternal life. We've spent most of our time in John chapter 3, where Jesus has this midnight conversation with a man named Nicodemus. In John 3, we learned about the depths of man's sinfulness. We learned also the greatness of Jesus Christ as the Son of God and as the Savior of sinful men. And throughout John 3, we learned, once again, that eternal life and peace with God are not things that we can achieve in our own strength. It's not something we can just manufacture or produce on our own, but these things are found by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. And then last week, our brother Trevor showed us one particular scene in Jesus' life that illustrates his salvation in terms of opening the eyes of the blind. And I'm thankful that Trevor uh, was able to minister the word to you last week. I would encourage you, if you've missed any of those messages, to go back and listen to them. The message of salvation, the message of the new birth, is a message that we must return to often. It is one of those messages that is foundational to our understanding of why we're here. What is wrong with the world and how we can be made right with God? This is that issue by which we must examine our own hearts. There is no greater question that we can wrestle with. No more pressing need for us to consider than this. Where do you stand with God? Have you been born again? I want us this morning to continue this theme, to continue considering this question by looking at another moment in Jesus' life where he taught about the nature of the new birth. He taught us another lesson about salvation, And this time, he does it in terms of children, and children entering the kingdom of heaven. And so I want us this morning to look at Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. It's a short text, but it's packed with truth about salvation and how to find it. So I invite you to follow along with me in Matthew chapter 18 as I read verses 1 through 4. of heaven. Let's pray. Our Father, this question of entering the kingdom of heaven, the question that the disciples should have asked is a question of great importance to us today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The four books of the Bible known as Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, are all serving to introduce us to Jesus, to teach us who He is, to teach us what He came to do, and to teach us what it means to follow Him. They're not exactly biographies, though they're pretty much biographical. They're not a complete record of Jesus' life, but they are focused. And each gospel writer has a slightly different approach to introducing us to Jesus. Together, we get a a very vivid picture. In each gospel taken on its own, we get a very specific focus on some aspect of Jesus' life. The Gospel of Matthew gives great attention to the teaching of Jesus. There are many sermons or sermon summaries that are recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Chapters 5 through 7, we find the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 10 is another sermon. Matthew 13, Matthew 33, Matthew, 20, or Matthew 23, excuse me, and Matthew 24 and 25, where we find the Olivet Discourse. These are not necessarily word for word accounts of what Jesus said. And likely, I suppose, he didn't preach any of those sermons just once. But they are a summary. They are a picture of the theme of Jesus' life, of the message that he taught throughout his earthly life. Matthew 18 is one of those sermons. It's one of those discourses. This morning, we're not going to consider the whole chapter. We're not going to look at the whole sermon. We're only going to look at the first point of the sermon. first part of the chapter, verses 1 through 4. But throughout chapter 18, we find some of the most well-known verses in all of Scripture. Almost every verse seems to be an example of a well-known verse in Scripture. Most of us might recognize Matthew 18 as the chapter we go to for instruction on church discipline. What to do when somebody within the body of Christ is misbehaving. But there is so much more to Matthew 18 than just that. Matthew 18 is vital to us understanding the kingdom of God. To figure out, to understand, to see how we get into the kingdom of God. To see who belongs to the kingdom of God. And how we're supposed to live in the kingdom of God. Two chapters earlier in Matthew 16, Jesus mentions the church for the first time. And he taught us that he would build his church, and that the gates of hell itself cannot and will not prevail against the church. Interestingly enough, that imagery of gates is a defensive posture. We often think of hell as on the offense and the church on the defense, and it's actually the other way around. It is the church that Christ builds, and it is the church that, as it were, storms the gates of hell in victory. That's Matthew 16. Moving ahead from Matthew 18 into Matthew 28, Jesus gives the Great commission. Right, He gives the explanation, the the mission statement of the church and tells us what the church is supposed to be doing. But before he gets there, Matthew 18, his first bit of instruction about the church isn't so much about what we do, but about who we are. Before he tells us what we are to do, Jesus first wants us to understand what we are to be. That's what he's focusing on in Matthew 18. And so chapter 18, Matthew 18, is vital for the church to study, not just then, but today and in every age. Because in today's age, there seems to be quite a bit of confusion about the church, right? There seems to be a lot of confusion about who Jesus is and what he was really here to do. There's a lot of confusion about what it means to be saved and and how we become saved and what the church is and how we become a part of that and what the church is supposed to do and how we're supposed to relate to one another. It's a lot of confusion. And unfortunately in today's world there's often a corporate mindset or a political mindset or a social mindset that often infiltrates the church and and tends to overshadow the biblical mindset of what we are to be and what we are to do as the church. So, Matthew 18 brings us back to the foundation. To the foundation of the life of the church. And here, in these verses, we learn the very entry point into the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? What does it take to get into the kingdom of God? Why does it matter? And how are we to behave as citizens of the kingdom of God? And the key word here in these verses is child or children. Followers of Jesus Christ as citizens of the kingdom of God are called children. And we'll study what that means as we work through the first four verses of this chapter and consider what Jesus has to say about entering into the kingdom of heaven. Let's consider first of all the question, the question that sparks this discussion. It's not a question we would have expected. It's not a question that seems to be closely related to the answer that Jesus gives. But It is a curious question. In verse 1, we read, At that time the disciples came to Jesus. At what time? The time of Matthew 17. Remember, this is a story. This is a picture of Jesus' life that is being painted for us. And a phrase like this tells us that we need to understand what went on in Matthew 17 before we come to Matthew 18. But it also tells us we're in a new conversation. In chapter 17, we see two significant things happen. First of all, in verses 22 and 23, Jesus foretells his own death. Disciples, you need to understand something. You're following me, and I'm going to die. He continually told his disciples that. He knew exactly where this was going. And then we find also in chapter 17, instruction on being good earthly citizens. Now, as we enter into chapter 18, Jesus turns the disciples' attention to the instruction on being good heavenly citizens. I'm going to die, and you don't understand yet what that means, but this is coming, and so when I'm gone from here, you need to know how to live in this world and how to live in this world as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That's what he's teaching here. And after giving us this setting, we come to the question that the disciples asked when they approached Jesus. Here's the question Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, they're not asking that in an abstract context, they're not asking, Jesus, tell us which angel is the greatest angel. They're coming to Jesus, and they're saying, Jesus, which one of us are you going to exalt higher than the rest? That's the question they're asking. It is an incredibly foolish question. Would you ask a question like that? You might not verbalize it, but I'll bet you've thought it before. But it's a foolish question. But understanding the context of the question helps us. And there's a lesson here for us to learn behind this foolish question. And Jesus is going to get to that lesson. The question they ask reveals a problem, a serious problem in their minds. And it goes deeper than just a foolish question. These disciples had an obsession with who among them is the greatest in God's kingdom. Who among them is exalted or better than the rest or has an edge in Jesus' mind? This was not a question that they wrestled with one time. It was a constant argument among the disciples. What were they talking about? Well, when we read about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew, that's the same thing as the kingdom of God. And there was a serious misunderstanding among these disciples, between them and Jesus, about what this kingdom really was. When the disciples talked about the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, they were thinking in earthly terms, physical kingdom, walls, borders, armies, thrones, at that time, in that place. When Jesus talked about the kingdom, he meant something else. And we'll see that in a few moments. But the disciples, we need to understand, had a Jewish background. That's important. Because the Jews were the designated, the selected people of God from the Old Testament. They were the ones that God had chosen to dwell among. They were the ones who were that doorway through which God was bringing the Messiah into the world. They were the ones who had been set apart from the rest of the nation, the rest of the world, and the rest of the nations. They were the ones to whom the promise was given that there would be a Messiah, that there would be a Savior who would come, who would save his people. So the Jews had been trained from birth to expect a Messiah, to expect a Deliverer, the Anointed One from God. They were trained to look for him. They had certain expectations of him. But here's the problem. By the time the Gospels were written, by the time Jesus walked the earth, the Jews' expectations of the Messiah were not so much based in Scripture as they were in religious tradition. And so their expectations were a little bit warped by now. They expected a conquering hero, to ride in on a mighty steed and deliver the Jews from the tyranny of Rome and to establish a kingdom right then and right there. That's why the triumphal entry was so triumphal, ironically, though he wasn't riding a great and mighty steed. This is why, after certain miracles that Jesus did, the crowds tried to take Jesus and and even forcibly make him their king. This is why the disciples had such a hard time with Jesus telling them he was going to die and that they would suffer. They couldn't fathom a Messiah who dies. The Old Testament teaches that he would, but they couldn't see that. So much of what Jesus taught about the character of the kingdom and the character of its citizens was contrary to what these men had learned all of their life. And it was contrary to society's view of greatness and strength. They thought Jesus was coming at that time in great power and glory to overthrow Rome and to establish an earthly kingdom right then and there they thought he was coming to meet what they had decided was their greatest need and so they missed what jesus was really there to do and so this question in verse one who is the greatest of this in this kingdom of heaven is a reflection of how much they had missed it and here it's as if the disciples are trying to bring jesus to a point of decision You know, Jesus, you're going to start this kingdom. You're going to establish this kingdom. You're going to need a vice president. You're going to need a secretary of state. You're going to need a cabinet. You're going to need all these positions. So where are we? Where do we fit in? What's in this new kingdom for us? The question reveals that they've completely missed Jesus' plan and his purpose. They have completely missed what he has taught them on the kingdom of God so far. They have completely missed what he has taught them about his own death and about salvation. He was not there at that time to bring a new Jewish kingdom and to overthrow Rome. He was there to bring salvation to the Jews and to the Gentiles alike. He was there to preach repentance He was there to call men to follow him. He was there to die and then to rise again and to secure salvation for his people, not just in that day, but in every generation. The disciples missed it. And what's more, this question not only reveals their lack of understanding, but it also reveals their constant, incessant self self-focused pursuits. Now, I don't want to be too hard on these men. They were true believers, except for Judas Iscariot. These were men that would later learn the lessons and would rise up to be pillars in the establishment of the church. This, these men would become what Christ meant for them to be. But in this moment, they are almost comically selfish. They had a preoccupation with their own desires and prominence, even amongst themselves. They had a constant problem with pride and self-advancement. And in following Jesus, they knew they wouldn't attain to him, but they were trying to jockey for position among themselves. And the parallel passages of this passage... In Mark chapter 9 and Luke chapter 9 tell us that these disciples actually argued with each other constantly about these things. They weren't keeping them to themselves. They were making their case. And these arguments and questions always seem to come at the worst possible time. If you trace it, look at it in Scripture it's pretty much always right after Jesus has said, I'm going to die. Yeah, 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 Jesus, but which one of us is the greatest? How foolish. And yet that is exactly how foolish our pride looks every time. We don't see it in the moment. But that's how God sees it. It's not just foolish, it is grossly inappropriate. Right? This Guys, Jesus just poured his heart out to you and said what's coming. And it's a troubling picture. And all you care about is who's greatest among you? Who's greatest in the kingdom? Who's going to have the position? These disciples were unable and unwilling at this moment to accept that Jesus was going to die. They didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to acknowledge it. They couldn't even understand it. They were too focused on their own glory. And, and that they thought that they would get through their association with Jesus. Jesus was a tool to them. Jesus was a means to an end for them. He was the last piece to the puzzle to them. The point is that their own self-pursuits, their own selfish ambitions had blinded them to who he really was, to what Jesus was really teaching and what he was really here to do. They know he's the Messiah. They know he's the Christ, but they don't know yet what that means. They're missing the point. Jesus taught them about his death and what that would mean. He taught them about the virtues of those who follow him. He taught them about the gospel, and they completely missed it because they had their own idea of what the kingdom should look like and they want it to come to pass right here and right now, and they are not concerned, and they are most concerned about who is going to be number one among them. All of that is wrapped up in the disciples' question about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And it tells us a lot about where their minds and hearts are, and it opens the door to a very important lesson that Jesus wants to teach them on the kingdom of God and who gets into it and how we're to behave in it. And lest we be too hard on these disciples, let's understand that their attitude in this moment is a reflection of where most of us are or have been. And so the lesson he teaches them is a lesson we desperately need to learn today. Whether you are a Christian at this moment or not, we all have to hear this lesson. As one writer said, the teaching here is desperately needed in the church today. Where selfish ambition is widespread and obligation to perform our duty to fellow children of God is routinely ignored. Does that describe today? Yeah. Then we need to hear what Jesus says, right? We need this text because we struggle with the same mindset. We need the constant reminder about who Jesus is and what he came to do. We need the constant reminder of who we really are and what salvation really means and how we are to behave as citizens of the kingdom of God. And so, the Lord Jesus, being the great master teacher, interestingly enough, is very gentle with his disciples here. Such a foolish question, and yet he's careful, he's gentle, he's tender, and he teaches. This is a teachable moment, and he always makes good use of teachable moments. And that brings us to verses 2 through 4, where we see the lesson. We've seen the question, now we see the lesson that Jesus teaches in all of this. A lesson about the kingdom of God and how to get in. Verse 2. And with that, he flips their question completely around. Instead of just answering them or rebuking them directly, Jesus gives them an object lesson. Verse 2 He calls a child, he puts a child in the midst of them, before them. That word child has the idea of a very small child, sometimes even an infant, but in this case, it would have been a child who is big enough to come to Jesus when called. Mark's account of this scene tells us that his child was still small enough for Jesus to take into his arms and even sit on his lap. In this scene, we see the tenderness of Jesus displayed, don't we? We see a reminder that he loved children, and children loved him. That he wasn't harsh. Children wouldn't come to a harsh person. He was a loving, tender person. And Jesus puts this child in the midst of his disciples and explains the connection between the child and the kingdom of heaven. He says in verse 3, Listen up. Truly, I say to you, this is an important truth you need to understand. And he says to them, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh oh. Now we're not talking about positions within the kingdom of heaven. We're talking about who's in and who's not. And it becomes clear here that Jesus and the disciples were using the same terminology, but they were talking about two different things. The disciples were expecting a conquering king to come in and rescue the Jews from the tyranny of Rome. And Jesus is talking about children. What does he mean by this? What's he getting at? Well, the kingdom of heaven that he is talking about here clearly isn't a merely human or earthly kingdom. What he's talking about here is salvation. He is talking about the, the lordship of Jesus Christ over his people, in the hearts and in the minds of his people. Yes, one day that will include an earthly physical kingdom, but that day isn't here yet. Today, it is an invisible kingdom in the hearts of all Christians. And then the fact that Jesus says that they must enter means that it's not a given that they're already in. Man is not naturally a part of this kingdom. Now, that would have been news to the disciples. That would have been news to the Jews in that day with their Jewish upbringing to find out ethnicity and family heritage are no basis for citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. We live in the South. We're in the Bible Belt. I wish I could start charging a dollar for every time I've heard somebody say, my daddy was a preacher. There were a lot of preachers in the South one generation ago, <laughs> apparently. Apparently. Friends, that has nothing to do with where you stand with God today. Jesus is teaching here even that not just ethnicity and heritage, but nobility and self-effort are no basis for citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Again, we live in the South. We live in the Bible Belt. I wish I could charge $2 for every time I've heard somebody say, when asked, Are you a Christian the answer being I go to such-and-such church friends your church attendance does not make you a follower of Christ your good behavior does not make you a follower of Jesus Christ your tithing doesn't make you a follower of Jesus Christ Your political views don't. Your social action does not make you a follower of Christ. All of these things, any self-effort, any nobility on the part of mankind is all worthless in God's sight without Christ. In fact, there is absolutely nothing that a man or a woman can do or can offer to God that will make them citizens of, kingdom, of the kingdom of heaven. It cannot be bought by anything we can offer. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, not that we're generally good people who just need a little boost along the way. It says we are dead, that we are helpless, that we are hopeless, that we are slaves to the evil one. And even in our best efforts, doing his bidding in this world. Ephesians 2 tells us that it is only by grace that we have been saved, through faith. But it is not our own doing, it is the gift of God. It is not the result of any works, so that no one may boast. That is the point Jesus makes here. Entering the kingdom of heaven is the issue. And entering the kingdom of heaven is necessary because it is only there that we are safe from the judgment of God. And so this bickering about who the greatest is among the followers of Christ is completely missing the point. Because here's the point. There is a God, and He is holy, and He is going to judge sin. He is going to pour out His wrath on all who are sinners. And unless you enter the kingdom of God, you are eternally hopeless. So let's talk about entering the kingdom. What are we supposed to do? We're not naturally a part of the kingdom of heaven. We're alienated from God. And God's going to judge us, and there is nothing we can do in and of ourselves to change that. So what do we do? What good news is there in that? Is Jesus literally looking at his disciples and say, quit talking about the greatest in the kingdom because you're not going to get in anyway, period, end of story? Is that what he's saying? what hopelessness that would be. What are we supposed to do? That's where the child comes in. That's where the rest of Jesus' teaching comes in. In order to enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, you must turn, he says, and become like children. That word turn means repent. It has the idea of be converted the idea there is of turning and facing the complete opposite direction that's why Jesus is flipping their question on its head you are facing the completely wrong direction you must turn he is directly challenging their mindset he is indicating that they are completely wrong in their thinking here's why they believe they have the right to be exalted in God's kingdom right then and there. And they are continually preoccupied with their own self-advancement and their own well-being, or to put it in modern terms, of their own brand, their own ambitions. The death of Christ and of their own suffering, don't factor into their mindset. They're only thinking about themselves. They're only thinking about their own well-being. All they care about is their own exaltation at this point, their own pursuits. And Jesus is telling them, unless you turn away from that way of thinking, you're not even going to get into the kingdom of God, much less be exalted in it. You're thinking about the wrong thing. In order to enter the kingdom, Jesus teaches that they must turn away from these worldly mindsets and ideas of greatness and from their own selfish ambitions, and they've got to get a handle on what the kingdom of God really is, and they must follow that way. So Jesus tells them not just what to turn away from, but what to turn toward. See, when there's bad news associated with the gospel, it is never for its own sake. It's only for the purpose of teaching us the good news, right? And the gospel is good news. So he tells them, what are you to turn toward? And he says, become like children. This is where that child in their midst becomes a great object lesson. This is where this comes into play. In what ways are children a contrast to the disciples' concept of greatness? Well, to understand that, we have to look at children through the eyes of that society in which Jesus was living. Our culture today has a slightly different view of children. We pamper our children pretty well. In fact, oftentimes, children are run in the house, right? Parents, sometimes you feel that way, right? We view most children, most, as cute and precious treasures. All children are precious treasures. Not all children are cute. (laughs) Cornerstone kids are. (laughs) We treat them with great care. And while I'm sure a lot of that was true in Jesus' day as well, children weren't viewed primarily that way. When Jesus told the disciples to come like children, what would have come to their minds was the idea of helplessness, desperation, inability, dependence, vulnerability, simplicity. Children have no means to provide for themselves. They have no achievements of their own. They have no wisdom to function in this world on their own. They are utterly and completely dependent on someone else to provide for them, to care for them, to lead them, to teach them, and to protect them. That is exactly what Jesus was getting at in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. In other words, unless we recognize our utterly dependent and desperate sinful state, And unless we recognize our helplessness in earning God's favor, we are not in a position to receive his gracious gift of salvation. The basic attitude necessary for salvation is humility, humble dependence, coming to him as having nothing, recognizing our own sinfulness, our own unworthiness, our own desperation for God's saving grace. See, here's where we get off track. We might recognize and we might even accept and be okay with Jesus as a great Savior. But my question is, are we willing to confess ourselves as great sinners? That we are not just overall pretty good people. Because if we are overall pretty good people, then we view Jesus as either the last piece to our puzzle or the genie in the lamp to do our bidding. And when that's the case, we're God. And God won't allow any gods before himself. But when we come to him with our hands open Saying, I have nothing. I am a sinner. And whatever judgment you deem just is for me. But I plead your mercy through one who died for me, through Jesus Christ. Those are the ones who enter the kingdom. And so Jesus responds to the disciples' question by saying, wait a minute, guys, back up. You want to know about who is the greatest in the kingdom, but with your attitude, we're not even in the kingdom. Your attitude expresses the attitude of one who hasn't even gotten in. So before we can even talk about greatness, we need to talk about something more fundamental, and that's admission, Unless you repent of your pride and your self-glorifying ambitions, you're not even a part of my kingdom. The kingdom belongs to those who show this childlike humility and dependence on me, he says, for eternal hope and security. And so it is for all who would be saved. And then after addressing this and establishing this attitude necessary for entrance into the kingdom of heaven, Jesus adds one more thought about greatness in the kingdom, and he does it in verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You want to know who the greatest in the kingdom of heaven among you is? The ones who get in all those who humble themselves in this way are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He turns the conversation away from the idea of exalting one person over another in the kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean that in God's kingdom there there aren't different roles and gifts and responsibilities among God's people. That's not what he's getting at here. Paul deals with that when he talks about diversity among the gifts and parts of the body and everything in 1 Corinthians. But here, What Jesus is getting at is that our focus when it comes to the kingdom of heaven should not be on our own exaltation or our own station, but on the exaltation of Jesus Christ alone. Our salvation from beginning to end is all of him, from him, through him, to him, and for him. After all, who really is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's him. Christ Himself. And if we are where Christ is, truly worshiping Him and serving Him, then there is no room and there is no reason for exalted views of ourselves. So in these four verses, Jesus is speaking to those who were already following Him. These are His disciples. But what He says here serves as a powerful warning and a lesson to both Christians and non-Christians Jesus brings us to the foundation of the gospel what is the gospel it starts with God God is the creator of everyone and everything and if he is the creator he is the owner he makes the rules it is his creation he is holy and he is righteous Because we belong to Him, we answer to Him. There is no hint of evil in Him whatsoever. He is just, and He demands perfect obedience of His creation, to His will, and to His laws. But man, man rebelled against God by questioning His authority and desiring to be like God. Man wanted to be the greatest. And as a result, all mankind is born under the curse of sin and is by nature alienated from God, destined for his judgment and completely unable to save himself. That is Scripture's picture of man on his own. But God, because he is great in mercy, because he is great in grace and love for his creation, sent Jesus, who is both fully God and fully man, to be the perfect representative for man by living a perfect life in our place and then dying a sinner's death in our place, taking on himself the judgment for sin that we should bear. And he died in our place, and then three days later he rose from the dead, and then he ascended on high, and he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father pleading for us. Which means, guess what, beloved? There is a way of salvation in Christ. And all that is left for man to do then is to respond in faith and repentance, to believe that Jesus is the only way to eternal life, to turn from our sinfulness, to seek forgiveness from God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ alone. So this morning, if you are with us and and you are not a Christian, You've never come to that point of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. This text is a simple call to you. It's a gracious and loving and tender call to you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for the salvation that you so desperately need. You need to recognize that you are a sinner and that because you are a sinner, you are under the judgment of God already but there is a way of escape. You can be rescued from that judgment, and it is through Jesus Christ, only through Jesus Christ. You don't have to work your way to Him. You don't have to clean your life up first before He'll be willing to accept you. All you have to do is cry out to Him for mercy to be saved, and He will save. You, friend, will have no hope in your life until you find your hope in Him alone. Now, Christian, this is an important lesson for us, too. Remember that Jesus is talking to His own disciples at this point. We might recognize that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, not from any worthiness in ourselves. But how often is it that we will fall into the trap of comparing ourselves among ourselves of possibly even jockeying to outdo one another in the areas of grace. How often is it? We we may not be so brash as to ask a question like the disciples asked, but do we entertain those kinds of thoughts in our hearts? In the rest of this chapter, Jesus will give crucial instruction about life in the church. Now that you are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, How are you to live? And I would encourage you to study that on your own time. But it all has to do with our relationships with one another and our relationship with God. And so before he gets to the details, he brings us to a point of examining our own hearts, our own relationships. Where do we stand with God? And he brings us to a point of remembering where we've come from, Christians. We're not all that we're sinners saved by grace so once we were children of wrath now we are children of God by God's grace alone therefore let us remember our great salvation let us remember the judgment we've been saved from let us remember the eternal and glorious inheritance that we have been saved to let us rejoice with one another that we have been called and brought together in Jesus Christ. And let us live each moment of every day with these thoughts in mind, that in everything we do, we would worship and rejoice in Christ Jesus as his beloved children. Christian, that's how we ought to live. That ought to be the governing principle of our life. If you're not a believer yet this morning, I urge you, come to Christ. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. Let's pray.